John 17 this morning. Um, we are going to come this morning to verses 6 through 8. This is our, uh, actually our fifth part, I believe, uh, of, I know it says part four, but I believe it's part five. Uh, it is of John uh, chapter 17. And so we're going to read verses 6 through 8 this morning. Remember, Jesus is praying. Uh, and so if you would stand with me for the honor of reading God's word together, uh, this is what Jesus says to his disciples um, this morning. We're just going to read the three verses, 6 through 8, to the precious and errant and fallible, precious word of God. Uh, the Bible says, I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and that they believed, and they believed that you sent me. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go together and join together in prayer, thanking him for his word. Father, you are, um, you are indescribable in your goodness and your mercy and your grace to us. Uh, Father, as we begin now to think about um, your words to your disciples, Lord, knowing that these are directly towards your immediate disciples whom would soon become apostles, but Father, that these words can also be applied to any disciple of Jesus, the ones, uh, Lord, who are following you by faith. And Lord, that is anyone in this room who, who is a Christian, who you have saved. Lord, we have tremendous things we can learn and hear from uh, this word this morning. So we ask that you would speak to us, uh, Lord, that your word would be clear, that we would hear it clearly. Um, and Father, we would be strengthened, Lord, that we would become mighty in the faith because of the preaching of your word, that you'd be faithful uh, to use your word in each and every one of our lives for your glory and for our good. We trust you to do this, Lord. We, we are trusting you to use your word preached uh, for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. So we pray that you do that now in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, as I've said in the prayer this morning, we come to what's now the second portion of this high priestly prayer. Uh, Jesus, if you remember in the first portion of the prayer, Jesus prayed for himself. Now in verses really from 6 to 19, um, he is praying, he shifts his focus of his prayer toward his disciples. Uh, and so there are just uh, three quick things, I think, uh, in this particular prayer that we can take note of that can be an encouragement to us that we can learn from. And so I want to point them out to you now, uh, and let's go ahead and jump in with the first thing. Uh, the first thing our Lord mentions in this text here is the fact that Jesus has manifested the Father's name to his disciples. Jesus has manifested the Father's name to his disciples. And that may not seem like a, a big deal. It may not seem like much, but when you unpack what this means, it's uh, tremendously moving and encouraging to consider. Here, Jesus says plainly 
And one of the things he has done for his disciples, his follower, is he has manifested the Father's name to them. And, and that's an interesting thing to draw attention to. Why is it important that he manifest the name of the Father to him? Well, if you remember, it's coming, I hate to tell you this, I'm not skipping Thanksgiving, I'm not that person that goes from Halloween straight to Christmas, but Christmas is coming, and if you remember one of our favorite Christmas verses, you know that when our Savior was born into this world, one of the names that was given to him was the name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. See, from the very moment Jesus came into this world, he has been about this work of manifesting God's name to us. From the moment of his incarnation, the moment he came into the world, we had God living with us in living color. Uh, last week, we spent some time discovering how Jesus revealed the attributes of God to his people through his person, his character, and also his work. Well, Jesus also reveals God to us in the way he manifests his name. And we see this clearly when we consider how God himself gives himself the name that he gives to Moses in the Old Testament in Exodus 3. You remember that. God reveals his name to Moses there at the burning bush. And he told Moses his name is I am who I am. Jesus manifests or Jesus reveals to us this name of God in some absolutely spectacular ways. Keeping in mind that, that God's name has been revealed to us as I am. Think about the ways Jesus has revealed the Father's name just in the chapter of John to his disciples. Jesus said of himself, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. In all these ways and more, Jesus takes a name of God to himself. And then through his person and his work, he displays for us what that name means. So it's simple. If you want to know God's name, what it means and what it reveals about him, all you need to do is look to Jesus. Look at Jesus' person, look at who he is, look at his work, look at what he does. You will learn what God's name is and what it means. And I want to say this because you, you know the, the false religions of this world have many different names by which they refer to their gods. But none of their gods have ever become as one of us in order to reveal themselves to us. Jesus, by manifesting God's name, has. Jesus has become as one of us to make a way for us to the Father. We must know this name of God if we have any hope of being saved from our sin and from death. Jesus made this abundantly clear earlier in the gospel in John chapter 8 verse 24 when he says, For unless you believe that I am he, and by the way, remember that he is in italics in your Bible, which means that's not actually in the Greek manuscript. That's added for grammar purposes. So Jesus actually says, for unless you believe that I am 
the name of God, then you will die in your sins. The most important thing you could ever know is this name and what it reveals to you about God's provision of redemption through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You must know this name. And so in application here, I, I'm pleading with you to take the time to get to know it. And I'm not just saying know it as in be able to recite it. I mean, as we talked about uh, two weeks ago, to know that you have eternal life by knowing the God of this name. To spend time in the word to study the person of work in Jesus Christ so you can see clearly who God is. Let me ask you, do you personally know God's name? Do you personally know his name? You can only know it by knowing Jesus. It's the only way you can know God's name. Let's move on now to verse 6. I want to read verse 6 again. We've already read a little bit, but I want you to pay close attention to the end of verse 6 for me. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. Now listen to this part. And they have kept your word. I, I got to be completely honest. Uh, Jesus refers to disciples, these disciples, these 11 in front of them, as having kept the word of God, meaning that they had both observed it and obeyed it. I, I don't know about you, but as I read these words, even now I want to scratch my head. <laughs> I mean... Is he talking about the same group of men here in this verse? The same group of people that we've been reading about in this gospel? Let me ask you, is this how you would describe them if you were to describe the disciples? Those who have kept the word of God, who have obeyed and observed the word of God? I mean, what do we learn about these men in the scriptures? We find them failing time and again to properly understand the things that Jesus is teaching them. We see them continually failing to apply the, God's, uh, the truth of God's word that he's revealing to him uh, uh, through his son Jesus. And here we find Jesus saying that they kept his word, that they've obeyed it. Uh, just a few moments earlier, Jesus had noted how weak their faith was. And yet, now Jesus is praying to the Father for them, and he doesn't mention a word about their weakness here, but instead, he describes them as men who have kept his word. And to make it even more amazing, not only does Jesus know how they were previously to this prayer, but he knows how they're going to be in a couple of hours when he is taken and accused and on trial and put on the cross. He knows that they are about to leave and abandon him. He knows they're about to scatter like sheep. They are going to leave him alone. He knows Peter is going to deny him three times yet he still refers to them as those who have kept the Father's word? I mean, come on, guys. This is ridiculous. So how and why can he possibly describe the disciples like this? 
I'll attempt to tell you in one word. Love. Love. Jesus loves his disciples unconditionally. That's our second point here. Jesus loves his disciples unconditionally. This is astounding to think about. Love, as we know, covers a multitude of sins. Love, as if you've ever been to a wedding and heard 1 Corinthians 13 read, right? Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Well, friends, in Jesus, we see a perfect application of love toward his disciples. Friends, can I, can I ask you, do you have any idea how much God loves you if you belong to him? I think we sometimes forget. In fact, I think we tend to think of God as someone who's just following us around, just taking note of everything we've done wrong. That's not what we see here. What we see here is him looking upon his disciples in love. We see him being gracious and merciful toward them. Our Lord is full of grace and love for his disciples. He loves us so much that he even sees in us glory. He sees us having the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. See, that's the only way that Jesus can be truthful about saying they have kept your word. It's because of what Jesus was doing for them, what Jesus had done for them. That is how it can be said they have kept the word of God. It's because they are seen as righteous in his sight and he loves those who are his unconditionally. J.C. Uh, Ryle, uh, one commentator, reminds us of this. He says, the least degree of faith is very precious in his sight. Though it be no bigger than a grain of a mustard seed, it is a plant of heavenly growth and makes a boundless difference between the possessor of it and the man of the world. Wherever the gracious Savior of sinners sees true faith in himself, however feeble, he looks with compassion on many infirmities and passes by many defects. It was even so with the eleven disciples. They were weak and unstable as water, but they believed and loved their master when millions refused to own him. That faith is precious in his sight. But listen, that faith is precious not merely because all faith in itself is precious. That faith is precious because of the object of that faith, and the object of that faith is King Jesus. That is the only thing that makes your faith precious and valuable in God's sight. We tend to think that just having faith in something, you know, just believe in something, and that's important, is, is what's really precious and valuable. No, it's not. The object of your faith matters. Right? If, if I believed in unicorns, um, I may uh, be, be pleasing to my daughter, who's three and a half, but to you, I'm a fool, right? I'm sorry, if I just crushed your dreams that unicorns actually exist, I apologize. You needed to hear that, though, if that's the case. Because the object of that faith, there's no glory in it. But the object of our faith is the Lord Jesus Christ, the King Jesus, who in himself is the very definition of precious and valuable. Therefore, that faith in him is precious and valuable. 
The object is faith, of faith is Jesus, and that's what makes it so wonderful. It's because of who it leads to, it looks to. And let me just tell you, I, I'm, I've been in youth ministry uh, for a while as a youth pastor for three years and youth service for five years. And I can tell you, I, th- I think I've said this before from the pulpit, there are two types of parents in this world. They're the parents that when their kids pull the fire alarm, they're, as I imagine myself being and being like, oh, goodness gracious, that's my kid. That's got to be my kid. No matter what, whoever, if you have proof and evidence of it being another kid, I'm just assuming my kid had something to do with that happening, right? Um, And then there are other parents where you could show them visible, visual evidence that it was their kid who pressed the fire alarm, and, and they said, no, not my angel, no. That somebody else coerced them into doing that. They've been hanging around really bad influences. Listen, this type of unconditional love that Jesus has for us, it doesn't mean that he merely just looks over our rebelliousness. He's not winking over at us being rebellion to him. That's not the type of parenting king that he is. But he is taking care of our rebelliousness. He satisfied the penalty of our rebellion through his son, Jesus Christ. And and this is a glorious thing. And and now these disciples, as well as all of Christ's disciples, were called out of the world and they were given to Jesus. That's what we see in this this verse. And we talked about that a little bit last week, or a couple weeks ago, that you, if you are in Christ, are a gift that's been given from the Father in the covenant of redemption before eternity passed, somehow you have been given as a gift to the Father. That means if you're saved, it's only because of the gracious and merciful work of Jesus Christ and Him alone. Not of your own doing, because you have nothing to boast in but Christ Himself. But listen, I want you to notice something. Even though these disciples, as it says here, were called out of the world and they were given to Jesus Christ as a gift, as a people, the evidence that we belong to Jesus is seen in the way we respond to God's word. That's the third thing I want us to see. And this is vital. The evidence of a disciple is responding to God's word. Church family, there is an evidence that must flow in our lives if we are ever going to have any assurance that we are his disciples. There has to be. And and I don't mean to say this as if we should all become detectives in each other's lives to look and measure whether or not we think each other is saved. There's a place for that in church discipline as we encourage and strengthen believers. No, no, no. We must first look inwardly to ourselves to see if we are a believer. Because you will be accountable to God and God alone. And so I want us to see this. There are certain evidences that must flow in our lives if we're going to have assurance that we are his. Look at verses 7 and 8. This is what we see here in this text. Now, they have come to know that everything you've given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you And they believe that you sent me. I love the process we see here. There is a lot of uh, a direct process of how this works. In verses 7 and 8, we're shown how salvation is received from our perspective here on earth in space and time. In verses 7 and 8, we are shown the responsibility that we all have to respond to the gospel message. 
we must not miss the fact that these men received, knew, and believed the word of God. They really did respond to the gospel message. And God works that way. You must see evidence in your life in how you respond to the gospel message. Friends, we're, we're not just robot, robots programmed to do these things. We, you and I, are creatures. We are creatures with wills. We are creatures with affections. And, and we are creatures that must truly respond to God's gospel message. At the end of the day, it is definitely God who changes our heart and gives us faith, but that takes nothing away from the fact that if we are God's people, we must personally respond favorably to the gospel message. We must never forget that our Lord uses means in this world to accomplish his will. Now, let's ask this question. What is the most ordinary means that God uses to save sinners? This is the first evidence we see. The word of God must be proclaimed. It's the preaching of the word, the proclamation of the word. The word must be proclaimed. Jesus said that he has given them, his disciples, the words which he has received from the Father. So let's think back. Let's look at this. How were these words given to them by Jesus? He proclaimed. He preached these words to them. And then he commissioned his disciples to take those words he had given to them and preach them to all the earth. Church family, if we hope to see people receive the word of God, if we hope to see our county, our city, our town saved, the church first off, needs to do its part in raising up ministers and sending them out to proclaim the word of God, but we also need to do our part in getting people to sit under the preached word of God. If this is an ordained means that God has set apart for this very purpose, then you and I have to do our part to get men, women, and children under it. The only hope we have in this world is the word of God applied to the hearts of sinners. Doesn't mean we don't evangelize, doesn't mean we go, uh, don't go out to share the gospel, but we must understand that if they're going to be saved, they have to hear the word of God. And in order for them to hear the word of God, the word of God has to be proclaimed. Paul says this over and over again in Romans 10, it's clear, but I want you to notice something. It's not the clever preaching, it's not whimsical storytelling, or the complex philosophical arguments that God uses as a means of saving souls. No, it is simply the faithful proclamation of his word. When God's word goes together with the power of his Holy Spirit, souls will be saved. God's word is powerful in that way. We're told that God's word is, is living and active. We are told that in the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. The word of God is where we find the power to resurrect dead souls unto life. Speaking of this difference between the words of God and men, Martin Luther, the great reformer, had this to say. He said, we must make a great difference between God's words and the word of man. A man's word is a little sound that flies into the air and soon vanishes. <laughs> I 
I wish we all viewed our words that way, by the way. Uh, But the word of God is greater than heaven and earth, yea, greater than death and hell, for it forms part of the power of God and endures everlastingly. That's what we say every week, right? That's why we say it, that the word of the Lord endures forever. God's words are eternal, they are effective, and they are powerful. Do we believe that? If we do, then how much time are we spending investing into the word of God? If we really did believe this, I really think in our lives we'd spend so much time uh, in, in wrapping ourselves in the word of God, saturating ourselves with the word of God because it's the only hope for the lost sinner and the only hope for the believer as well is to know God's word, to have it proclaimed. Peter also recognizes this distinction in 1 Peter chapter 1 where he speaks of how we've come to know God. He says, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. How? That is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all is glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. Different version than ours, obviously. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, another great hero of the faith, says, we must understand as we read these verses that the conversion of an individual is much more than a matter of mere persuasion. If persuasion were all that was required, then our words would be sufficient and we could win men and women by argument. But that is not enough. Arguments have their place. God uses them. But at its base, what takes place in the matter of salvation is something like a resurrection, a miracle, and clearly only the word of God, not our words, can accomplish that. Can I tell you how freeing that is as a pastor to hear, right? Uh, That that I don't, it's not my responsibility as a pastor to persuade you or argue you into heaven. I mean, the fact that I argued Amy into marrying me is a miracle on its own. Could I have to believe that I had to do that every week and your souls were at stake? I could not bear it. I'm so thankful that as a pastor, my primary responsibility is to faithfully proclaim the word of God and then trust the spirit of God to work. And church, I'm, I'm doing it. We, we, we need to trust the spirit of God to work. He's trustworthy to do it. And guess what? He's working. He is always, always working. Whether he's working to to harden you toward the gospel or to soften you towards the gospel, the Spirit of God is always active and living and working in the preached word of God. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. And I think Dr. Boyce is right. Now the word of God must be proclaimed as an evidence of of those who are in Christ, but it also must be received. It's your responsibility to receive the word of God. This is where every individual has personal responsibility as it concerns hearing God's word read and preached. We must receive it if we're going to be saved. We must. Our hearts must be like the good soil, ready to receive the word of God because only those who will receive it will be saved. Do you remember the warning that we're given in the parable of the sower and the seeds? We preached that not too long ago, although it's probably longer than I thought. There we are, are reminded of the reality that not everybody receives the word. 
Some folks look like they receive it, but whether it's the cares of this world or the fear of persecution, it, it proves that the seed never takes fruit. It takes root and bears fruit. It never bears fruit in the life of the one who heard it. And, and unfortunately, this is kind of the case sometimes. Some people go to, to the church for years, their whole lives, and they listen to thousands of sermons. They maybe have read and memorized great portions of scripture, but they have never actually received it into their hearts. We have to be careful, church, not just to hear the word and merely read the word, but we must receive the word for what it really is. The word must be proclaimed and it must be received. Have you received the word of God? It'll be shown in your obedience to it, by the way. The third thing, a third evidence that we uh, are a disciple is that the word of God must be known. We must know the word of God. And that's what we see here. What is it, though, as we look at this passage before us, that the disciples knew? What is it that they needed to know? Well, Jesus tells us in his prayer what they knew. He says, truly understood, they truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. See, in, in the gospel message, it is essential for us to know that Jesus came to earth from heaven and to know that he is sent by the Father to accomplish the work of salvation. We must know these things. You'll notice here that the certainty, by the way, that the disciples had about this knowledge that they received. As they heard Jesus proclaim his word, they received it and they knew it with certainty that his words were true. That is what people must hear proclaimed. It is what they must receive and know by God's grace. They knew the heavenly origin and nature of Jesus and his teachings. They knew it with certainty. They had no doubt that what Jesus said were in fact the very words of God himself. They knew God's word and Jesus himself were divine. They received his word because they knew they had the very son of God proclaiming his word in their midst. And as the people of God, church family, we must also know this to be true of ourselves also. There must be a certainty about our belief in the words of Jesus. I'm not saying we don't struggle with doubts at times. But friends, we are all going to have to answer to him one day. So you and I better make sure that we are certain that what we read here in the gospel accounts is in fact the very word of God. If you need help on that, let me encourage you to come on Wednesday nights. This word can be trusted wholeheartedly, but, but I want you to see this. Knowledge isn't the last stop. It's not enough to simply know the word of God. It's not enough evidence to really be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have one more ingredient to consider as it concerns our responsibilities to the word of God. It's not enough to know things about the word. We must, of course, believe these truths as well. And it's not just about believing certain abstract, pick them and choose them facts about God. We must have faith to believe and trust the one to whom the proclamation points. In other words, we must believe in and trust in the person of Jesus. Now, that sounds pretty straightforward, doesn't it? That's, that's basic vacation Bible school stuff, right? 
Hear the message proclaimed, receive it as God's word, know what it's saying to you, and believe in the one whom the message is about. Simple enough, right? So why is it that so many people refuse to believe it? Well, because, friends, though it may be a simple message, it's a message that cannot be believed unless God does a work in changing our minds and our hearts. Because we are born in love with sin. Uh, Paul reminds us in what uh, Brother Bob read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24, he says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, people hear the message that we just brought before you and their response to that message is that it is utter foolishness. They think it's absurd. It's basic. Elementary. They think we're, we're too grown up to believe in such fairy tales. They think we've come too far in our knowledge and understanding and the evolution of man in this world to believe such a simplistic message as the cross of Jesus Christ. They think they know better. They think they have been taught better. They think anybody who believes in this message is a simpleton who cannot think for themselves. Who needs the crutch of religion to get them through life because they're too weak to accept the truth that God doesn't exist. This is the way they view us. Church family, what I love is if you know Christ, you know that's not true. If, if you believe, then you know quite differently, don't you? If you believe, then you know the power of God. If you believe, then you have experienced the power of God in your life. You know what it's like to be born again. You know what it's like to be a new creature in Christ Jesus, to have the peace of God that surpasses understanding and to know the comfort of God that comforts to the deepest parts of our very soul. If you believe you know God and the Holy Spirit has taken up residence within you and you cannot deny him, so, so say what they may if you believe you know differently. Others may laugh in this world. They may scorn us. But you, friend, if you are in Christ, you have nothing to be ashamed of. We've been given the wisdom not of this world, but the wisdom of God. Truth is, we're not fools in the matter. What does the Bible teach us? The scriptures teach us that if you want to be wise, how do you do that? You cannot even begin to be wise until you, first of all, fear God. Have a reverence for him. The scriptures tell us something about the fool, by the way. The scriptures tell us that the fool is the one who says there's no God. So the question before us is, who are we going to believe? Are we going to believe the words of the world? Or are we going to believe in the one who created it? Now, as we look at the condition of the disciples. I, I've said this time and time again, but it's maybe my favorite thing ever. We, we know they did not have a perfect faith, right? We know they had many faults and they failed in many ways. 
fact, Dr. D.A. Carson, when he's speaking to the disciples, he says this. He says, they may not have understood that their Messiah had to die and rise again. They may not have grasped how he was to embrace and fulfill in his own person the Old Testament motifs of kingship, sacrifice, priesthood, and suffering servant. But they had come to the deep conviction that Jesus was God's messenger, that he had been sent by God, and that all that he taught was God's truth. Here's the thing I love to remind you time and time again. It is not so much the amount or the strength of faith that matters. What matters is if you have any faith at all. No doubt we have an advantage over the disciples because we have the complete and written word of the scriptures. But even with the great privileges that we have in the end of history, we also know that we too blow it in our walks on a daily basis. We blow it in our faith, in our trust. But there's hope, friends. The question is not necessarily how strong your faith is or how great your faith is. The question is, do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, J.C. Ryle reminds us of this again. He says, the true servant of God should mark well the feature of Christ's character, which is right here brought out, and rest his soul upon it. The best among us must often see in himself a vast amount of defects and infirmities and must feel ashamed of his poor attainment of religion. But do we simply believe in Jesus? Do we cling to him and all our burden upon him? Can we say with sincerity and truth, as Peter said afterwards, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you then let us take comfort in the words of Christ before us and not give way to despondency. The Lord Jesus did not despise the 11 because of their feebleness, but bore with them and saved them to the end because they believed. And friends, he never changes. What he did for them, he will do for us. My final question is simple. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe what the scriptures tell us about him? Do you believe that he is the Lord, that he is the Savior, that he's the only mediator between God and man? That's the message God has given. It's the message we must hear proclaimed. It's the message we must know, we must receive. It is the message that we must believe in if we are going to be saved. So do you believe in Jesus? If so, do you also walk with him? You talk with him? Do you worship and obey him? Because this is the kind of fruit we should expect to see in the lives of those who believe in him. Granted, listen, we will never obey as we ought on this side of glory. But there ought to be some evidence of these things in each one of our lives nonetheless. As stated earlier, It's not so much the amount or the strength of the faith that matters, but whether we have any faith at all. God is the one who is the strong tower. He is the one who sovereignly holds us in his hands. Do we have the faith to believe that we are in his hands? I pray that we all could say a resounding amen and yes to that. Amen. Why don't we stand and you can please join your hearts with me in prayer. Father, we 
consider ourselves very grateful and unworthy to hear this gospel message that, Lord, you have come into the world to save sinners. Lord, in knowing myself to be a sinner, hearing what, have you, what you've done in bringing your word to me and proclaiming your word so that I might receive it, know it, and believe it. Lord, my response is not only just praise, and it is praise, but it is obedience. It is walking in light of that truth. And so, Lord, I just pray on a personal level that you would help me obey you more. Lord, that in, that in my own personal life, I wouldn't just simply bear the call of being a pastor and then automatically assuming that people see Christ in me. But Lord, I would pursue you more in my life. That I would love you more. That I would worship you more. That I would obey you more. And Lord, you would produce that in me with such obedience that becomes contagious to people so that I may proclaim the gospel to them and they be saved. Lord, I pray that for every believer in here. I, I know I must not be alone in this and that's such a comfort and yet, Lord, we need your help. We need your help to be obedient. We need your help, uh, Father, to receive this word, to know it, to proclaim it, and to believe it on a daily basis. We are fully dependent upon you, and that is why we thank you that you have manifested your name to us and that you do, if we are your disciples, love us unconditionally. Lord, what a freedom that places in our lives to Lord, not be crushed by the law or this weight of works-based religion, but to know that if we have given our lives to you, that you love us unconditionally. What a praise that is. And yet, Lord, you have promised to work this in us. You have promised to produce in us obedience. So, Father, I pray that we would be those who bear the marks of Christian, those who show the evidence of Christian, or not so that we could puff ourselves up or pat ourselves on the back, so that we would be purposeful in bringing the gospel to the nations. We love you, Lord. You are worthy of every ounce of praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.